morning, church. How's everybody doing? Excuse the cord. We couldn't get the hand up on it yet, so hopefully it'll stick on there. <coughs> so yeah, so for those of you guys who are new or those of you guys who have been here with us, um, you may have noticed our seats looked a little different this morning. We have a lot of people, a lot of people who normally serve are out, and so I just want to commend the worship team. Like they did a great job, so it's really good. Um, and I appreciate y'all in there for for leading the band. I, I really appreciate your prayer because although the English and the Gators, it's a big part of my family, so I think that is a big significance to our God. So yeah, so um, as a church body, uh, we have been going through the book of Galatians, right? And so the, yeah, we've been going through the book of Galatians, we've done a, a series on spiritual gifting, right? And so then we also have dedicated the first Sunday of every month to do one of the 15 songs of ascent. And so the songs of ascent are uh, a collective of 15 songs um, that the, the Jewish people would, uh, would chant or quote or sing on their journey up to Jerusalem for Holy Week to worship God. And so it was a time uh, during their journey that they would use these songs uh, to kind of prepare their heart to go into worship and you know, be in the presence of the Lord. And so... So yeah, so let's dive into to Psalm 131. I'm going to see if Dylan can put it back on the screen for me. Yeah, so if you notice, it's a really short psalm, right? Three verses. And so um, so when I initially was uh, handed this passage to teach on, I read through it and was like, all right, we're going to be getting out early. This is really easy, like simple three verses like just knock it out and so uh i felt that but then i also felt the weight of all right well how can i actually prepare a sermon in three verses and so uh yeah it's it took me a little bit i uh i had to sit and meditate and pray on it and just keep praying and keep meditating and keep reading and keep reading and and just keep praying and it it finally kind of came to me, and I felt like the Lord kind of gave me what he wanted me to teach on. And so <laughs> now I've kind of gotten to a point to where, like, I've blown this thing wide open, and I have so much stuff that then it was like, all right, you got to rein it back in. Like, it's getting, it's getting a little out of control. And so, so yeah, so bear with me. It's, I don't know if it's going to be short, and I don't know if it's going to be long. Hopefully it's right on cue. Uh, and so, yeah, so let's dive into the psalm. And like I said earlier, and, and Ed and Michigan's prayer, like, this psalm was written by David. Uh, most scholars will agree with that. They say it's it's authored by David. And so um, let's we're going to break it down. We're going to look at verse by verse. So we're going to we're going to start verse one. And so when I initially read that verse and realized it was written by David, I had two questions that that I really kind of felt posed that I felt like God gave me. It was like, how is David? this great king, right, the slayer of Goliath, um, he's killed bears and lions, like he's done a whole bunch of things, right, uh, how can he kind of attack pride in the way that he's doing? Uh, and then the second question was, well, let's look in what scripture says about pride. And so we're going to start there. We're going to start at how did David kind of, uh, how was he able to, to, to talk about pride in the way that he did? And so, um, 
so yeah, so th- I have two two passages that I want to look at that David, it's about David's life. I got to find them. And so the first one is um, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45 through 47. And I would say that probably everybody in this room knows this story. It's the story of David and Goliath. But I want to highlight one particular passage. And it says, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a dagger, a spear, and a sword. But I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. And that's, I love that passage because it really, it highlights David's heart posture, right? He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm David. I'm going to go kill this, this giant because you guys, you guys are too, too wimpy. To, you know, y'all are too wimpy to y'all are sitting in your camp, and I'm just going to come up and do it. No, he was like, God's already delivered you to me because you have defied me. And so he trusted in the Lord's sovereign, sovereignty, right? He, he was submitted to God's authority, and he was satisfied in the outcome that was going to happen. The, the next one that I want to highlight is a little bit less known story, but I think m- probably most people would, would know it. Uh, it's the story of David when he's hiding in the cave from Saul. And so if you guys don't know who Saul was, basically mad at David. He didn't like David at this point. And so he was trying to kill David, so David was hiding. And uh, Saul enters into the cave where David and his men are, right? And so then it says, uh, actually, David had approached Saul, unbeknownst to Saul, and was going to kill him, but then didn't kill him and just cut off a piece of his rope. And so, but then he was like, all right, I cut off a piece of a rope uh, off of his rope. Like, I feel guilty about this. Like, <laughs> why, why am I feeling guilty? And so he's th- this is where this, this passage comes in. It's uh, 1 Samuel 24, 5 and 7. It says, afterward... David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's rope. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. And so in that moment, like, David had the opportunity to, to seize the kingdom, right? Like he could have just like I'm gonna I'm taking Saul out and then and then I'll be king, right? But he didn't do that. He he submitted himself to God's sovereign rule and plan, and he said I'm gonna wait on the Lord's time. And if you want to finish out that story, after Saul leaves the cave, David actually comes out of the cave and says, "Look, Saul, I could have done this to you, but I but I didn't because I'm waiting on the Lord's timing." And then Saul was like, "Thank you." Like that was like. That's a great thing, and it, it was just a, it's a really cool ending because God actually then hands the kingdom over to David after this point, and so, yeah, it's really good, and so, um, so yeah, so David's able to, 
I, I feel like that these two stories are really good at they're showing David's hard posture, but they're also showing David's action, which speaks to that verse one. Let's can we pull it back up, Joe? I'm sorry. Go back to the Psalm one thirty one. Yeah, it says, My heart is not proud. So that's speaking to that like his heart posture is submitted, right? And then it says, My eyes are not haughty. He's not envious of Saul's position. Like he's not just like, I have the opportunity, I'm taking it. Like I'm going at it. He's like, Nope. I'm I'm gonna be submitted to the Lord. And so I really think that that is how it, it, it explained to me anyways, how David is able to really write and attack pride in this first, this first, uh, first verse. And so, um, so yeah, so we, after looking at that, let's, let's go into and, and look at what scripture says about pride. And so I have a multitude of verses. The first one is, uh, Proverbs 11, verse 2. So this is this is scripture, right? When pride comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. Man. Uh, the next one is Psalm 44. How happy is the man who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. So again, heart's not turned to the proud. He's not running after things that the world would see him as, right? James 4, 6. He gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's heavy. And then the last one I pulled from a sermon a couple weeks ago, it's Galatians 5.26. If you guys were here, you remember... Nick's teaching on this. And let's not be become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And I, sitting sitting in the sermon and listening to that, I feel like the Lord really highlighted that passage to me. And it's like, that really fits. That fits really well with that first verse, right? Uh, the conceited term, you know, being all about oneself, envying and provoking. So the envying is you're looking up. You, you want to envy somebody's position or you're envying things that you would like to attain or, or circumstance or whatever, things like that. Uh, and then the provoking is what David's talking about when he's saying he has haughty or lofty eyes. Like he's not, he's not looking down on people and condescending them either. So he's not coming from a, from a place of superiority saying like, I'm better than you, stay beneath, you know, stay beneath me kind of thing. And so I really feel like David, he nails it. Like he, this first verse, like he's attacking pride at multiple different levels. He's talking about it at the heart level, the soul level. 
he's talking about at the physical appearance, like I'm not better than anybody. But then he's also saying, like, I don't go out and try to attain things that are too marvelous or too wonderful. Like, he, he's not acting on pride. So he, I, just, I think it's really good. It's just a really, like, very multi-level step of um, coming against pride. Um, yeah, in that, in that sermon, uh, the, the, the term glory bashing is used. And, yeah, that's, that's just really good to think about glory bashing. Like, am I walking around trying to just do life for my own good, trying to seek glory? Or am I willing to be submissive to the Father? All right, so moving on, we're going to move to verse 2. Go ahead, pull it back up, please. Sorry, Joanne, I'm missing you. All right, verse 2. Uh, instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a little weaned child in its mother. I am like a little child. All right, we're at the point that everybody is waiting for. What is this about? A weaned child. What are we talking about? Like, this, like we're talking about pride, and then all of a sudden, I'm a weaned child. What? What is going on? And so my thought initially, uh, when I hear the term weaned child, it doesn't, it's not a comforting term to me. Uh, I will say that my wife and I have been blessed. We, we have four kids. We just welcomed our fourth born uh, at the beginning of August. He was born August 3rd, so he turned a month old yesterday. And so uh, in my household, we have been around several weaned children, right? And so <laughs> whenever you hear the term weaned child, to me that means frantic or discomforted or like, you know, throwing fits and being upset, right? Like, that doesn't seem like something I want to be equated with. And so, but then I, as I meditated on that and started thinking about that, I feel like the Lord revealed to me, like, your grammar's off a little bit. Like, you're not thinking about a weaned child. You're thinking about a weaning child or a child that hasn't been weaned and is in the process of weaning. And so, the, the weaning child, the one who is in the process of moving away from immediate nourishment, immediate satisfaction, has this like disgruntled, um, yeah, disgruntled, frustrated situation. Like I, in that in that moment, like the child, the only way that they can have satisfaction is to have that immediate nourishment, right? A weaned child is content with not having the immediate nourishment or the immediate gift, but understanding that the giver is the one where you can you can put your ultimate satisfaction. And so, man, just just going through this and, 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 and learning and having that, like, revelation and then sitting over here during worship and knowing, like, the, the, lit, the song set that was played, like, wow. Like, the Holy Spirit is at work. Like, it's so good. Like, we didn't plan this. Like, I didn't sit here with Jade and say, like, sing this song. Let's sing this song. Like, pulled the, the song list herself, and it just, it's so good to see that work. And so, so yeah, I just really want to highlight that, that a weaned child sitting in the mother's lap is simply satisfied with just being in the presence of the mother and understanding that the comforter is better than the comfort. The giver is better than the giver. Right? I, ha I have an 
illustration I want to I want to kind of share, and it's it's from Paul David Tripp. I love Tripp. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think Paul David Tripp. A lot of the things that he writes is just really spot on. And so uh, he has this like mo- motto or mantra that he kind of says a lot throughout his books. Like he he writes this big notebook program, and it's this this statement. And I hope Sterling can put it up on the on the screen. If I only had blank. Yep. So, yeah, so it goes like this. It says, if I only had blank, then I would be completely satisfied and my life would be what it should be. And so this statement is to make us think about, like, yeah, fill in the blank. If I only had this, let's throw some examples out there. How about more money? More money in my bank account, then I'd be satisfied. How about a new job? I don't like the job that I have. Let's, let me get a new job, and then I'll be satisfied. How about new car? How about a bigger house? I got four kids, right? It would it would be nice to have a bigger house. Not really. If you guys know me, like, we, we lived in a camper for three and a half years. So, like, we were good with a small place. Uh, so, yeah. Um, we, we, can, we can go deeper. Like, how about a, a relationship that you've longed for? A spouse. How about a child? How about recognition of things that you've done, that you've accomplished? If, if only I could get recognition for achieving this one thing that I achieved, then I'd be satisfied. I'd be happy. Yeah, that's pretty deep. So, yeah, let's... Uh, before we move to verse three, I kind of want to, I want to like, all right, so we've had verse one where we talked about pride. We've had verse two where we talked about a weary child. How do they, how do they work together? Why did the psalmist put them together? Like, why is this the way it is? And I, I believe that the psalmist put it together because it's painting a picture of two very contrasting lifestyles, right? There's two lifestyles. The first lifestyle in verse 1, that he's attacking is a very prideful, self-centered, self-focused, glory-vacuum lifestyle. To use that term, glory-vacuum lifestyle. Verse 2 is a very submissive, surrendered, dependent, and not thinking about themselves. Right? We're content with just knowing that God has it. The giver has it. We are sitting in the lap of the comforter. That is a, that to me is why I think the psalmist just put it together. It's two, two contrasting lifestyles. We said earlier that this, this psalm is really short, right? It's thinking that we could get out of here early. And so I, I, I love that while this psalm is two verses, three verses, I believe that it has a really big implications for lifestyle. In fact, Charles Spurgeon is on record saying that this psalm is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. It takes a lifetime. He said it speaks of a young child, but it can't contains the experience of a man in Christ. 
fix something. So yeah, so move, moving to verse 3. I titled this one, Trust in the Lord. Last week I preached this. And it says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. And so I think that this third verse is a statement verse that helps us understand the correlation between verse 1 and verse 2. It's an it's a urgency for God's people to put their hope and satisfaction and joy and trust in their life, ultimately, in the hands of the Lord. Let's not seek all of the things that are around us to bring us satisfaction. Yes, those things are good. Those things that I listed earlier, they're not bad in nature. But when we, when we terminate our joy and satisfaction, and when we terminate how we, uh, yeah, we terminate our satisfaction on those things, then we become idol worshipers of, the, of, that, of that stuff, of that, those circumstantial things become idols. And they take the place of Jesus. I also, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, I also believe that uh, these, this psalm, like we said, it's, it's the song of ascent. Like the, the people were, were chanting and quoting and singing these things on their trip to Jerusalem, right? They're preparing their hearts. I believe that that has the same implications for us today. Prepare our hearts to be with the Lord. Like be in the presence of the Lord. And we need to, we need to get, to be better at speaking truth over ourselves and speaking truth to each other in community. I love that Jaded mentioned that, like community is part of it. But while, if we terminate our joy on community, it's going to fail us every time. Every time. It may be good temporarily for a little bit, but eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to find its place. And so I think that as believers, we, we, we need to speak truth to each other, and we need to speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves that our identity is found in Christ and that we can terminate our satisfaction and joy on the comforter, on the giver. And I, I think it's funny, too. Like, I had this, I had a small revelation earlier while we were worshiping, and I was like, Jesus is not only the giver, but he's also the gift. And it's like, wow, like, okay, he just full circled the whole thing. So good. All right, so as we wrap up, uh, I had a I have a quote from John Piper. Many of you guys know John Piper, um, and you probably heard one of us up here say it before. But it's the quote. It says, "God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him." And so, finding our satisfaction in the Lord not in the circumstances that are surrounding us, not in the gifts that we can attain, not in the new job or the new car, not not being a glory vacuum lifestyle, not living pridefully. Like let's let's terminate our satisfaction on Jesus. I also wa- I also want to finish with a kind of a challenge for us as believers. And I want to pull that script quote back up, but I'm going to change it. And I'm going to fill in the blank for us. If I only had Jesus, then would I be fully satisfied in my life in Jesus? 
if everything else went away. Because we know it's all fleeting, right? At some point, at some level, we're going to lose it all. We can't take it with us. If I only had Jesus, would my life be complete and would I be satisfied? Yeah. Seeing me, amen. I think that's good. All right, let's pray.